How's everybody doing? Well, I want to share a couple of sights uh, I saw yesterday. I was driving uh, over on 169, and I came across this really uh, busy stretch of 169, and there's a, a bridge there. And as I came up, I could see the Trump signs, I could see the Clinton signs. And then I looked closer, I was like, is that Hillary Clinton? And she's wait, you know, she's leaning, leaning over the bridge. She's waving. I got closer and closer. And I'm 47, so I'm, I tend my brain's a little slow. And it's somebody in a costume as Hillary, but man, it was like identical. It's like wow, she has no bodyguards. It was amazing. Uh, and, and then, and then, uh, as I was going south on 169, I came over to the Shakopee area. And I saw all these cars driving into the Renaissance Festival. I backed up 169. How many of you been into the Renaissance Festival? And I'm thinking. What in the world, why are they doing this? Why are they going to the Renaissance Festival when the 41st Ryder Cup is on TV? It's unbelievable. Why would anybody go see the Knights at the Renaissance Festival and not watch the Ryder Cup? It's besides me, anyways. It has nothing to do with my sermon. I just wanted to share that this morning. So we're in this series called Squad Goals. This is our last uh, segment of Squad Goals. I, I'm, I'm excited about our next series that we kick off. It's called I Wish I Were a Parent Who dot, dot, dot. And we're going to talk about I wish I were a parent who had more patience. I wish I were a parent who ensured accountability. And that series actually came from uh, one of the moms in our congregation. Sometimes I ask people for ideas for sermons uh, or sermon series. And this is going to be a good one. That starts next Sunday. But this morning, I'm excited about wrapping this up and talking about squad goals. And if you haven't been here, it's really just sort of a um, definition of that is around community. We've been talking about what does it look like to be in a community? And to actually not only be in a community, uh, because each of us has this primal urge, this ache inside of us to connect, to belong, but also be part of a, a community, a squad, a uh, platoon that makes a difference in this, in this world. And, and this morning, we're going to talk about uh, having direct, direct, con, uh, direct conversations, truth-telling, uh, where we have uh, confrontation, and, and not in a mean way, but actually in a good way. Because if you really want to experience community, it's not simply being nice, it's not simply having common interests, but sometimes you've got to take that step to tell the truth. And I remember one of the first times this happened to me. I was a young youth pastor, just starting out with my first job, and my, the senior pastor wanted to talk to me. I sat down in his office, and he just shared with me, Craig, here's a couple of things that um, I want you to improve in your leadership. And I remember him saying that, and, and for me, I wasn't equipped or prepared for that kind of uh, conversation. And, and he was saying, Craig, I, you're a good leader, but you need to improve in these areas. It almost felt like somebody shot some slivers or some little planks of wood inside of my heart. Because then I got defensive, I got combative, and responded that way. And I think many of us have that where we respond. We're not used to conversations like that, especially in the Midwest. I would say in the Midwest, we have a chronic niceness. If you go to the East Coast or in the West Coast, you don't see that as much. But when it comes to Minnesota, when it comes to the Midwest, we have this sort of chronic niceness. But if we want to experience community, squad goals, if we want to take that step, then you and I need to engage in honest conversations with people. Truth-telling, where we have uh, confrontations. When I say confrontations, I mean in a, in a nice way, in a polite way, because the Bible tells us to do that. So if you have a Bible this morning, I'd like to invite you to turn to Leviticus chapter 19, because God just lays it out for us that if you want to experience community, 
if you want to really have friendships and to love your neighbor as yourself, then you need to engage in one translation talks about in terms of, of talking op- openly and honestly. Leviticus chapter 19, and we're going to go to verse 16. Let me pray for us uh, before we start. Father in heaven, thank you so much for this topic. And for many of us that are here, uh, we're not used to, we're not equipped for truth-telling. Uh, a lot of times we, we've had people come at us and insult us uh, directly, and as a result, whenever there's conflict, whenever there's this kind of attention, uh, that we want to we step away from that. We're not comfortable with tension. Uh, so God, teach us, guide us in doing this because we have relationships in our lives that matter and oftentimes we have these moments, these moments in time where we need to step out and just share from our heart in a loving way, in a caring way to not bury it, not to smother it, so God, guide us as a congregation. Thank you for your word. Thank you for this uh, topic. And God, bless us. Go before us and beside us and behind us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Everybody said? Amen. Verse 16 of chapter 19, Leviticus. By the way, Leviticus, very interestingly, back in the day of Jesus, uh, for Jewish boys and girls, this was the first book of the Bible that they would actually read. They would actually memorize this book first. And we go to our day today, it's the last book we read, Right? This is really ironic. But Leviticus, it's, it's called the book of worship. And I encourage you sometime to read through it. It's just a, a marvelous book. Verse 16. Do not spread slanderous gossip among your people. I'm reading from the New Living Translation. Do not stand idly by when your neighbor's life is threatened. I am the Lord. Do not nurse hatred in your heart. I'd like to underline that phrase. Do not nurse hatred in your heart for any of your relatives. Except your mother-in-law. No, just kidding. (laughs) Kidding. I'm kidding. Confront people directly. Circle that. Confront people directly so you will not be held guilty for their sin. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against a fellow Israelite, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So many of us have heard that. Love your neighbor as yourself. We heard that from Jesus. It's the greatest commandment, right? And he gets that from Leviticus chapter 19. But it's in the context of this truth-telling. You know, we can pluck that verse out in verse 18, love your neighbor as yourself, but we need to read the the previous verses to really get that. Because for you and I to truth-tell, to confront people directly, we're doing that because we love them. We need, to do, we need to engage in that because it shows our love and our care and our concern for them. And this word confront in the Hebrew is yaka. There you go. That was a good Hebrew uh, pronunciation, a little saliva in there. Yaka. It means to uh, correct or reason with. Oftentimes you'll, you'll hear, let us reason together. And it's that word confront in the Old Testament. And that's what we see here in Leviticus 19. And the idea is that is is Two people coming together and, and airing out what's inside here. It's also something that God does for us as well. Let's take a look at Revelation 3.19, where God does this in uh, our own lives. Revelation chapter 3, verse 19. And I love about who God is, is that he doesn't ask us to engage in things or do things that he himself does not do. Revelation chapter 3, verse 19. And this is actually a letter to the church in Laodicea. 
he says, I correct and discipline everyone I love. It's the same word, confront. Uh, truth tell. I correct and discipline everyone I love, so be diligent and turn from your indifference. And what he simply is doing, he's restating Leviticus 19, is for us to confront one another and to share. Now, the question that comes up, and if you're taking notes this morning, why do this? I mean, our lives are hard enough, right? I mean, you come home from uh, work, you're exhausted. Uh, you have not enough challenges in your life. Your kids raise enough challenges for you. Why in the world do you want to add on confrontation, maybe with a, with a colleague at work or perhaps a relative? Why throw that on? Because it's so easy for us to simply ignore it. Maybe you're at a party and your boyfriend or girlfriend um, is drinking way too much and they're kind of causing a scene. And the next day they, they tell you, wasn't that party great? And you have that moment. Will you tell them the truth? Or will you just kind of bury it because you want that relationship to keep going very, in a very positive way? Or, or maybe it's, it's where you get together during the holidays with your in-laws and you carve out all this time from your schedule to, to be there and to be there for everything, even the board games. And you're there for a long period of time and as, you're, as you leave, your father-in-law says to you, boy, I wish next time you could spend, spend more time with us. And you have this moment. What do you say back? You just kind of bury it and move on with your life. We have those moments, those gaps. And I would say the longer we wait, the more stuff inside of us builds up. And that's what God is saying in Leviticus. Don't hold those grudges. Don't bury that stuff. One translation says in the message, get it out in the open. That's what we're talking, when we say confrontation, that's what we're talking about. Get it out in the open. Talk through it. Talk directly. Truth tell with uh, these people. Your, your friends or your family or your colleagues, what have you. Do you do that? When's the last time you had a conversation like that where you just shared what was in your heart? You did it in a loving way, in a positive way, but you said, hey, you know what? This is what I feel, or this is what I'm seeing. When's the last time you did that? Because the reason why we do this, among other reasons, is that it bring, brings that relationship in a whole new level. People that I have engaged with in truth-telling, it's brought our friendship to a, just a, a deeper level, a higher level. And I don't think our relationship, I don't think my friendship with them would be where it's at. The trust would be where it's at and had we not done that. It's not easy. It's awkward. Let's be honest. Um, you're not quite sure what's going to happen. It's not scripted. You know, you, you can't do this via text. You have to do it face-to-face, -face and, and you're not quite sure how you're going to respond emotionally when someone does this. But it brings that friendship to a whole new level. So maybe for you and your spouse, or maybe you and a coworker, or maybe you and a friend or a relative, maybe for you to build that relationship even better is to take that step of truth-telling to actually take that step. Another reason why we do it is because it grows us spiritually. So often we talk about growing spiritually. That's why, that's why you're here, right? Yeah, okay. Just nod your head. Usually when it comes to questions like that, it's usually uh, yes or Jesus, okay? One of those works. 
all right? But yeah, you're, you're here to grow spiritually. You want to grow in your faith. And we talk about Bible studies. We talk about de, de, uh, devotions. We talk about downloading worship music, the latest worship album that comes out. And those are all great things. Uh, join a community group. But one of the greatest ways that you can grow in your relationship with God is how you uh, engage in your uh, fr- friendships and your relationships with people around you. As we talked about in this series, that there is a direct correlation between your relationships, your friendships, and your spiritual life. Your relationships have a deep impact on your spiritual lives. I know for me that's very true. That my relational world directly impacts my spiritual life. So if we want to grow in our faith, if we don't want to remain static and just kind of plateau in our faith, if we want to grow, then we truth tell. We truth tell. All right, now how do we do this? How do you and I engage in truth telling? And this is hard for some of us to do, to actually engage in truth telling, because I think there's some of us in here I know for me, for a long time, I was very shy, very introverted growing up. So when I had that conversation with my senior pastor, it just threw me. I didn't know how to respond. There's some of us that actually doing confrontation, doing truth-telling is actually, it's like we do it recreationally. It's like a, a sport. We enjoy it so much. Okay, there's some of us that we do it way too much, so there, there's a balance to it. But, but how, do we, how do we do this in a loving way? How do we do this in a a positive way? Because for a lot of us, it is so hard for us to tell the truth. Now, for for many of us, we think it's, you know, hard for adults, and that, like, for kids, it really isn't hard. But there is a a video there, uh, actually a a talk I saw not too long ago at a leadership conference, and uh, this guy, I can't remember his name, but he wrote a book called Crucial Conversations, and he talked about truth-telling. And his son engaged in this experiment at a school to see if kids his age would actually tell the truth because the premise was that adults have a hard time with this, but kids, kids can tell the truth. They can do confrontation. They can, they can really share what's on their heart. So let's watch this video. Our research, my son Samuel had a science fair project due, and uh, he said he wanted to study how little kids deal with crucial conversations. I was not particularly encouraging. I said, I said, Samuel, I think little kids don't have the same kind of social constraints that adults do. And yet, look what he found. We all know adults stink at talking about tough things. But how about little kids? Here's my experiment. Feed kids wretched brownies, then see if they'll tell you the truth especially when they think it might hurt your feelings. First I made the brownies. Lots of chocolate, eggs and flour, but instead of sugar, I put in salt. Lots of salt. There's no way they could like these better. Now I recruit kids of various ages for a taste test. I tell them I want to compare ordinary brownies to my special brownies. My dear grandmother's special recipe. My dear dead grandmother's special recipe. Then I give them a dollar for being such a big help. 
My parents always taught me that if you want someone to like you, give them money. Okay, here goes. First they ate the yummy sugar brownies. Next, they eat the salt bricks. Watch this girl. She can hardly keep from gagging. And now for the crucial moment. Will they tell me the truth and possibly offend me? I asked them to point to the brownies they like best. No surprise that some tried to spare my feelings. But watch. Even the one who gagged? And how about really little kids? But do you want to know what they really thought? Here, guys, I have leftovers. Does anybody want seconds? You probably didn't think you're going to come to church this morning and see, and see a kid regurgitate some brownies. How true is that, though? Honestly, for us. You know, the brownie tastes horrible, but we have a hard time telling the truth to actually tell somebody. And yet we have these moments. So, you know, how do we engage in something like this? First, I want to, I want to talk to, for, to those of you where this is actually pretty easy. Like I said, this, this is actually something recreational for you. You can do a lot of damage and when you don't do it the right way. And it reminds me of the time when I was in eighth grade, I had, I had an American civics teacher, Mr. Larson. And in eighth grade, I think I spent more time in the detention room than any room of, in a classroom. And I was rebellious. I'd cause problems. And I remember in Mr. Larson's class that I was causing a ruckus. In the, I was in the back row. And finally, he called me out. He said, Craig, you know, knock off what you're doing. And then he said this, I don't like you. I've never liked you. And I can remember the time and place when he said that. And then he went on, you caught, and this is in front of the entire classroom. And, and at, when he said that, I just kind of started lowering my seat. But somehow, I don't know where I came from, but I said, Mr. Larson, I don't like you either. <laughs> Which wasn't a good thing to do. But I still remember that, that time and place. And some of us, we say things like that, and it can do great damage. So when we talk about confronting people directly, um, there's a way to do that. There's a way to do that. And I want to kind of give an example um, that, that I heard from a pastor whose friend, or excuse me, his wife ran a consulting firm. Her name was Nancy, is Nancy. Nancy, and she had a partner named Jeff, they were, they were doing uh, some work with the staff uh, on the West Coast. And there were some problems with the staff, and they were trying to get over a hurdle. So the, the, the first day, they talked about vision, they talked about strategy, they talked about alignment. And this whole um, uh, two-day uh, deal was off-site. And that night, they went to dinner. And every person on that team and that staff pulled Jeff or Nancy aside and said, the real problem with uh, our, our team and what's going on is not vision, it's not alignment, it's Lisa. And Lisa is a part of the, the staff, the team. Every single person on that team, except for Lisa that night, talked to Nancy and Jeff directly and said, Lisa's the problem. And of course, it wasn't said in front of anybody, but just privately but one after another after another. 
So the next day, they get in more around alignment. And finally, um, this young, younger staff member says, you know, our problem isn't around alignment or strategy or our values. It's not about goals. The problem is, is Lisa. And Lisa's sitting right there, okay? He says this, Lisa's a jerk. And all of a sudden, and Nancy was leading that session, Nancy goes to sit down. She's thinking, there's no way they're going to pay us after this. And, and then he said, he goes, Lisa is a jerk, and she never gets her work done on time. And then instantly, Jeff stands up, goes with a whiteboard, and writes that up on the whiteboard. Lisa is a jerk. She, Lisa never gets her work done on time. By that time, everybody is paying attention. Their eyes shift from looking at the ground, and all of a sudden, he's got their attention. He says, we're going to get to those comments in a moment, but let's talk about this. And there's a little awkward silence. And then, and then finally, Lisa speaks up because she's humiliated, of course. She says, you guys, I've been here on staff for three years, and none of you have told me this before. We're in front of two strangers, and you finally tell me this. And then she shares that, that she is, had been taking on more work because there was a, a, an employee that was let go. And as a result, Lisa had to take on extra work. She said, you know, I'm, I'm doing like two jobs right now, and that's why my, my work is late. And instead of complaining, instead of asking for help, I just put my head down and tried to work my way out of it. And the CEO that, that was there in the team, he, he said, is that what it is? And she said, yeah. If I could just get some extra help, it would make all the difference in the world. He said, problem is solved. A lot of times, these problems that we have with people are very solvable. He says, problem solved. We're going to get some more resources for you. But that that young, young staff member who, who said that to uh, Lisa, said that, that she's a jerk and she gets, does, her, does her work late, he said, you know what, Lisa? I'm so sorry that I said it that way. I'm so sorry that I said you're a jerk. I've just been frustrated uh, when you and I work in teams where I bring my work on time and you don't. And then she apologized, and then all of a sudden it just came together right there. And I think oftentimes it's just kind of getting it out and talking openly and honestly, not calling people jerks, but actually just to talk it through. That's how we can do it. That's how we confront people directly, is to share it, get it out in the open, and talk it through. And so many times where we see this, we actually see this in the corporate world quite a bit, where they actually do that, but somehow, for some reason, in the church, it never happens. I think a lot of spiritual formation happens uh, in boardrooms, in the marketplace, and in companies more so than we actually see in the church, unfortunately. I love this verse from Proverbs. It's in your teaching notes. If you want to take a look at that, Proverbs chapter 27, verse 5, an open rebuke is better than hidden love. And there's another verse that says, wounds from a friend are much better than flattery from an enemy. And, and we, we need people in our lives that speak truth. An open rebuke is better than hidden love. It's better than silence. It's better than someone simply being nice and not telling us really what is the issue. Well, next, let's talk about what did Jesus do when it came to truth-telling? What did Jesus do? 
And we see this over and over because when we, we look at the life of Jesus, you know, we can see a lot of different things, a lot of good uh, lessons around Jesus. But if we were to summarize Jesus, we would say he is the master of the art of living. He came to save us, yes. He came to give us an eternity in heaven, yes. But he also came to show us how to live the human life. He is the master of the art of living. And in Matthew chapter 12, I want to encourage you to turn to that. We see this confrontation that's going to take place. And it's with uh, the, uh, the Pharisees and the, and the teachers of the law. And the context is, is that Jesus has been doing some things on the Sabbath. And of course, for um, these teachers and for these Pharisees, you don't work on the Sabbath. You don't do anything on the Sabbath. You don't help somebody who might need help. They need gas or they, they need money. You don't do anything. You're supposed to just remain at home on the Sabbath and not do a thing. And they're questioning Jesus in Matthew chapter 12, saying, you know what, your disciples and you, you're, you're breaking this law, this sacred law on the Sabbath. And this is what Jesus says. Because here's the thing. Jesus could have simply sidestepped it and said, you know what, I've been causing enough problems with these guys. Maybe I'll just kind of ignore this one and move on. Or, or maybe I'll just kind of give a pat answer. And he never does it. Every single time we see Jesus, he tells the truth. He does truth-telling. Matthew chapter 12, verse 3. Have you read in the scriptures what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He went into the house of God, and he and his companions broke the law by eating the sacred loaves of bread that only the priests are allowed to eat. And having you read in the law of Moses that the priests on duty in the temple may work on the Sabbath, I tell you there is one here who is even greater than the temple. But you, have not, but you would not have, have condemned my innocent disciples. I love that phrase, innocent disciples. If you knew the meaning of the scripture, I want you to show mercy, not offer sacrifices. He's saying it matters what's in your heart. Jesus tells the truth. Another time, his closest confidant, his closest disciple, Peter, says, you know, this talk, this conversation about crucifixion and all this kind of stuff, you suffering on the cross, Jesus, you don't need to do that. There's no need for that. And again, Jesus could have simply sidestepped that. He could have said, oh, Peter, you're wrong. Or, you know, he says, uh, Satan, get behind me. I mean, that's direct confrontation right there. He's saying, Peter, you're on the wrong track. This is part of God's mission. And then later on, after Jesus is resurrected and he's about to ascend to heaven, he has this last conversation with the 11 disciples in the book of Acts. And what he says to him is very important. That's truth-telling. He says, you're going to be my witnesses. You're going to be my witnesses in, in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And by the way, again, he takes another step. There's going to be the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is going to come upon you and empower you. So over and over, I invite you this week, kind of a homework assignment, read the different examples of Jesus where he tells the truth. Doesn't bury it. Doesn't sidestep it. He doesn't put like a nice, you know, nice veneer on, on what he says, but actually talks the truth because he knows that it's going to grow that person. He, know, he knows that it's going to grow in the relationship with him as well. Let's pray. Father God, I ask that you help us, that you help us to tell the truth, to do truth-telling with those around us. 
God, how many times have we had these moments where it's like a sliver inside of us because somebody said something and yet we bury it and we rationalize it because we think it's going to hurt them if we say something or we don't want to jeopardize the relationship. And God, it's hard. It's hard to take that step. So we ask your Holy Spirit to help us in doing so and to have those conversations in a loving way, in a gracious way, and then also be open to what the other person has to say back to us. And the whole purpose of doing this, God, is to love our neighbor as ourselves and to bring glory to you in your kingdom. In Christ's name, amen.